uh, finishing up this weekend a series called Better. And uh, when, I, when I originally put the series together, there were uh, 11 messages that were based on um, verses from the Old Testament, from the wisdom literature, uh, on, on better statements. Uh, wisdom is better than this, and, and this is better than that. And when I put the series together, there were kind of two bonus messages, if you will, that were from the New Testament, not from the Old Testament. And I thought, well, we'll just kind of, we'll kind of get into the series and see how it goes. And uh, so we decided to go ahead and do the two extras. Scott did the first one last week on uh, that it's better to be with Christ. And today, we're going to finish up the series with a second one that comes from the New Testament. There's actually other better statements in the New Testament, but this one was one that I really had thought a lot about, and uh, it was one that none of us really wanted to do, but in the end, I was like, I think we, we have to do this, and as we dive in, I think you'll see uh, why. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for, as always, uh, bringing us through another week, bringing us here this morning. I thank you for each person in this room who has made the decision today to uh, take some time to gather together with other believers, uh, to worship together, to fellowship, uh, to dig into your word together. And I, I pray now, as we open up your word, I pray that your spirit will take uh, these words of scripture that were delivered to us by the spirit and now uh, deliver them off the page and into our hearts and I know that we need to hear from you today, and I believe that this message is, is very important for every one of us, and so I pray that uh, we will be able to give our attention to you today and the message that you have for us. And so speak to us now, in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, just about two weeks ago, we had an interesting thing happen here at the church that many of you uh, know about. Um, somebody uh, got their hands on a database that had uh, the, the names and email addresses of many people from Gateway. And uh, thankfully, we're kind of, we're able to figure out how they did it and how they got in. And we know that all they got were names and email addresses. They didn't get anything else, but they used that um, and leverage that for their advantage. And many of you received emails, in fact, hundreds of people received emails that were supposedly from me. And we, uh, I began to understand what was happening. It was Thursday afternoon, about six o'clock, and I got a phone call from somebody who lives in the Seattle area. And they called, and uh, they used to attend Gateway when they lived here, and now they're up there. And they called and said, hey, Pastor Bob, you know, how's it going? And I'm like, it's going good. And they're like, well, I, I got an email from you. I'm suspecting it wasn't from you, uh, but it says it's from you. And I thought you probably should know about that. And over the next 48 hours, I got hundreds of phone calls and texts and emails from people that I had contacted. Um, and people had noted that it actually, if they paid attention, it wasn't coming from my email address. Address. So somebody or a group of people set up uh, three different email addresses that looked kind of like mine, though they weren't mine. Uh, they were a little bit off. In fact, one of the emails that went out, they even took my picture off our website. We know it's where they got it because it's the only place that picture exists. They put it on there and they sent out a series of emails. And so I know that many of you got them. Um, and the first one 
was just kind of, they were setting uh, a trap. They were putting out some bait and hoping that people would bite on this. And so the first one that went out was, was pretty generic. Um, it said something like, good afternoon, I hope you're doing well. Are you less busy at the moment? It's always a good question to ask. Uh, I have a request. I have a request for you, and I want you to confidently handle it discreetly. So a bunch of people right away said, that doesn't really sound like Pastor Bob. The English sounds a little bit off, and so... Um, a lot of people checked the email address and noted uh, that it actually didn't come for me, so they just deleted it and got rid of it. Now, some people just kind of clicked through, and I, you know, I know how that happens. I've done that before, too. They clicked through. They said, hey, you know, what's up, Pastor Bob, and uh, how can I help? And then uh, another email came back. Now, there was a couple of versions of the second email that went out, but here's one of them, and this is actually a screenshot from one that went out where I, uh, I say, uh, thanks for the swift reply. Here's what I want you to do for me because I think you're in the best position to do this for me discreetly. That comes up a lot. I have been working on incentives and I aimed, and people notice that English starts getting kind of weird, and I aimed at surprising some women going through cancer with gift cards this week. So I have to tell you, like, when I started getting these emails when people were sending them to me, I have to confess, I got so angry. I got so angry that there are people in this world that like this is how they make money. They send out email scams saying, hey, let's help some people with cancer, right? And I just, it just made me so angry that people were praying on our congregation this way. So they said this should be uh, confidential until they've all received. And for some reason they put gift cards in, in quotation marks as it's a surprise. And this will go a long way to show we care about them. I'll be responsible for the reimbursement personally. Hmm. And then, um, how uh, can you get this done and how soon? So now if you responded to that one, you got a third email that looks something like this. Um, I will be glad if you can get this done today. I thought of getting them physical cards, and so here's the ask. They're asking people to buy four um, American Express cards for $500 each. So a total of $2,000, I mean, let's just swing for the fences here, right? So they're asking you to buy $2,000 in gift cards, and then if you could, when you bring the cards home, take pictures of the front of the card with the card number, scratch off the back, take a picture of that, and send it to Bob, and uh, then I will make sure that the cards get to people who are dealing with cancer, and I will be sure to pay you back for every dollar that you spend on these gift cards, okay? So, and, and this is the ask that they have. So the goal here is this. They're trying to bait people into responding to the email. And then they're trying to bait you by, you know, saying, hey, let's help some people that are going through a difficult thing here. But of course, it's all a lie. They're trying to get you to believe a lie. First of all, that it's from me. And if you check the email, you'd find out that it wasn't from me. And also the lie that we would be helping people. The reality, though, of course, is that it's, it's all bait. It's all a trap. They're trying to get you to go for it, but it's a lie. It's all based on a lie. And if you were to do it, you would be basically giving your money to a crook. You'd be out $2,000. It'd be a lose-lose situation. Now, it's a terrible thing, right? And, and as far as we know, nobody fell for it. Although, to be clear, this is a scam that happens every day all over the United States. And a lot of people, I was talking to an IT expert who said, yeah, about 1% of people actually go through with it. And that's enough for uh, these crooks to keep going for this. So that was, uh, that was a fun situation about uh, two weeks ago. But now imagine for a minute 
that instead of trying to, to, to tempt you to buy some gift cards, which is, you know, it would be an awful thing, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be sin. Um, you'd be out a lot, but it wouldn't be sin. But now imagine that somebody was trying to tempt you to actually commit a sin. Imagine that they were trying to bait you to, say, commit a crime, or to bait you to, to harm someone around you, or to bait you to maybe lie to your mom and dad, or to lie to your kids, or to lie to your spouse. Or imagine that they were trying to tempt you to commit adultery, or uh, to maybe tempt you to use your friend's Netflix password instead of, you know, getting Netflix for yourself, or, uh, you know, to commit fraud at work, or to cheat on a test, or to cheat on your taxes, or maybe to get you to do something that's racist or sexist, or, you know, maybe just to get you to start listening to country music. That's never good. And so, like, just imagine... Sorry. Um, just imagine, though, that they're tempting you not to buy some gift cards, but they're trying to tempt you to sin. Now, I say that because this is the world that we live in. We live in a world and we have an, an, an enemy who is constantly trying to tempt us, not just to make an unwise decision, but to out-and-out out sin. What do you do when you live in a world that is constantly baiting you to sin? Well, this is going to be our big idea for this weekend, that getting rid of the bait is better. This is what we're going to talk about this weekend, and it comes from our passage in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 29. This is what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, these are strong words. We're going to break this down today and talk about, you know, what is Jesus actually saying to us? So, when he talks, uh, when he uses this phrase, causes you to sin, that's actually just one word in the Greek. It's the word scandalizo, and it means to entrap or to cause someone to fall or to entice you to sin. In fact, in the Greek language back in the day of Jesus, that word was used uh, of a bait stick on a trap. So it's this little fakey cheese part there, right, that at least mice in my neighborhood have fallen for. And that's the scandalizo. That's the causing you to fall. It's, it's bait on a trap that's being set for you. And um, this is basically temptation. It's the temptation. It's the bait to sin. So let's define temptation before we move on. A lot of different temp uh, definitions, but here's a couple I've got in your notes. Uh, the first is it's the intentional enticement of a person by some type of bait to disobey God's revealed word. Or, put it another way, anything that influences you to disobey God. Or a solicitation, right, a, a knock on the door, an, an email, a conversation, whatever it is that would encourage you to do that which is evil. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, it tells us about Jesus who was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. There's that word, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the devil, here called the tempter, because that's what he is, the tempter comes to Jesus and they begin to have a, a conversation in which he tempts Jesus to sin. Now, the word tempted there is a little different. It's the word pirazzo, which means basically to test or entice or to tempt. And temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, and yet without sin. Satan put out the trap, put out the bait, but Jesus did not sin. 
temptation is the enticement to sin. And sin is what results when we take the bait. So let's talk first about um, some basic sources of temptation. Where does temptation come from for us? And, and maybe it'd be good to start with what I call not a source, and that is God, because God does not tempt us to sin. James 1 tells us this. It says, let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if we want to go all the way back uh, and think about where temptation comes from, we would go back to the garden. Um, we would think about this perfect place that God created. We could talk about Adam and Eve who have been created in the image of God, and they have this relationship with God, this communion with God, this walking and talking and, and living with God. And the fact that Adam, for Adam and Eve, they would have never... Um, thought of being tempted to do anything. They didn't walk around the garden thinking I'm, I'm tempted to do that or eat that or do that because they're living in a world without sin and they're without sin. But Satan enters the picture. And when Satan enters the picture, he tempts them not to trust God. He basically says, did God really say that to you? And remember what he says? He's like, well, you know, actually God's holding out on you because if, if you ate from the tree, then you would be like God. And you would know the difference between good and evil and God doesn't want you to be like him. And so basically what the devil does is he gets them to question God's will for them and God's goodness to them. He basically says God isn't actually good. God's actually holding out on you. And so he puts this little, this trap out there. He puts this little bait and the bait is God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And we know that they took the bait that they disobeyed God, that they sinned, and they broke the love-trust relationship they had with God, and sin enters the world in Adam and Eve. And we call this original sin. The original sin that was committed and passed down to every man, woman, and child who has ever been born. We are all born with this sin inside of us. Now today we could say that temptation, the temptation to sin kind of has three basic sources that it comes uh, to us from. And we kind of see this in Ephesians chapter 2. It actually lays out all three of these for us. Paul's writing and he says, Now you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and you can break this down and we can see three sources of sin that Paul gives us here. The first we're going to say is Satan. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Satan is a real being. He was actually created as an angel. We know that he was supposedly the, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most wise angel, but he fell. He became proud. We now know him as the father of lies and as we saw earlier, also the tempter. And so when, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, we know that Jesus wasn't tempted from within. Jesus didn't have any sin, therefore he didn't really look at the world in a way that where he would tempt himself. It, it came from outside. The devil had to come up and engage in a conversation with him, and he had to tempt Jesus because Jesus would never tempt himself. Satan knows you. Satan knows your weaknesses, and that's where he'll try to bait you. He'll try to entice each of you to sin in, in different ways because he knows you and we don't always all fall for the same bait. And so Satan is real and he's in this world and he will come along and try to tempt you. There's a second one though and that is what we might call the world. Here, the course of this world. So Satan has influenced our culture. 
and set it up in such a way that it is constantly trying to bait you to sin as well. Maybe you've noticed that. We have a culture that's trying to bait you with, with images and with suggestions and you know, saying things like, you know, you walk your own journey in life. You be you. You do you, right? Instead of uh, follow God, obey God, seek out God's will for your life. And it's embedded in so much of our culture. Um, it's embedded in much of entertainment and education and social media and the internet and even politics. Now, it's not that there aren't some good things in there and some truth in there, but there's also lies that have been mixed into that so as to confuse us and Satan will use that to tempt us. Just, just the culture that we live in, just turning on the radio, turning on the TV, getting on social media, it's kind of baked in there. So we have Satan, and, and temptation also comes from the world that we live in, but it also call, uh, comes from something um, here that Paul calls the, the flesh, the passions of our flesh. I might call this self-temptation because of original sin. And that is this. We don't need outside sources to tempt us to be selfish. We all know how to do that pretty good on our own. We know how to be greedy and lustful and envious and, and brag and be proud. We can do that all on our own because of sin that's been baked in to the world and into us because of original sin. And so we see that there are these three basic ways in which temptation comes at us. It comes through the devil, it comes through culture or the world, we could say, and it comes from us, from just the flesh, uh, the original sin part of us. So what do we do with that? How, how do we resist the temptation that's coming at us all of the time? Well, I want to give a couple of suggestions here. And these come straight from Scripture. In fact, you'll notice uh, a, a pattern here as we get into this. I would say the starting place is with Christ. We need to trust Christ, and this is the gospel. Um, we believe, as Scripture says, the gospel is this, that we who were born in sin, in that original sin, that Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he lived a perfect life. He eventually goes to the cross where he dies on that cross in your place and in mine. He, he sheds his blood for the remission of sin. He's buried, he rises on the third day in which he conquers sin and he conquers death and he brings to us a, a power that when we believe in Christ, we are forgiven of our sin and he empowers us to be able to resist temptation as well. And it's interesting how he does it in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16, it tells us this. Since then, we have a great high priest, speaking of Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's speaking of our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So notice what the writer says to us here. Several very important things. He says, first of all, that Jesus has been tempted as we are tempted. And it's interesting sometimes, it's easy for us to think, well, no one's been tempted like I'm being tempted or to this degree. And yet what he says is that your temptations are not unique. In fact, Scripture tells us elsewhere that, that the temptations you face are common to a whole lot of people and that Christ has faced that temptation as well. In fact, what he says is he has been tempted as us in every respect. That's a, the next phrase, in every possible way. One writer put it this way. He said, consider your own life. Consider when the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, 
when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our own emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive important people, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us wanna throw in the towel, there, right there in that moment, we have a friend. We have a high priest who knows exactly what that testing feels like and he sits close to us, he embraces us. We are never alone. Christ has been tempted in every way that you and I will ever be tempted. And he goes on and says this, and yet without sin. He never sinned, and this is so important because Jesus' sinlessness means that he knows every temptation you face better than you know the temptation itself. C.S. Lewis does a great job of explaining why. He makes this point by, by speaking of a man who's walking against a powerful wind. And once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down. He, he gives in. And thus, he doesn't know what it would have been like 10 minutes later if he had kept going against that temptation, against that wind. But Jesus never laid down. He endured all our temptations without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any one of us. Only he truly knows the cost. In Hebrews chapter two, it tells us this, for because he himself has suffered when he is tempted, that is Christ is able to help those who are being tempted. Or as somebody put it, Jesus is not merely a doctor prescribing medicine. He is like a doctor who has endured the same disease and who has overcome it. And so when it comes to, to dealing with temptation, the starting point is the gospel. It's Christ. It's knowing Christ and trusting in Christ. But we have some other things available to us as well. Uh, in your notes, the second thing I notice is that we can pray to the Father. In Luke chapter 11, in fact, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, now when you pray, say this, Father. So we're praying to the Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So sometimes people get tripped over this a, a little bit and how he puts this, but I think Jesus puts it really well. First of all, he's saying that we should pray and be proactive. This is something we pray daily. We don't wait until we get into temptation. This is something we pray on a daily basis knowing that temptations come in our way. So we pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation. So what does that mean when we know that God tempts no one? Well, again, I think it's just an interesting way Jesus says to pray. It reminds us when we pray this, first of all, that God tempts no one to sin. And what he's really saying is, lead me away from temptation. It's just another way of saying, Father, I'm praying for you today that whenever possible, just lead me away from temptation like so that I don't have to face it in the first place. And for those that I do, I pray that you will lead me out of those temptations. Lead me not into them, which I know you don't do, but just lead me away from them. And it's a great reminder that our Heavenly Father stands ready to answer our prayer in that respect. So we have the, the Son and we have the Father and maybe you can guess the next one that's coming. Sounds a lot like the Trinity and that is we want to engage the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter six, Paul writes this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, there we go, of the devil and take the helmet, he goes on to say, of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is what? Which is the word of God. So we're reminded when we read this that you know, the way we got the Bible in the first place 
is that the Holy Spirit of God moved men throughout history to write down the words, the inspired word of God that has been written down and handed off to us all these years later. So that when we're reading the word of God, we're really reading the word that has come to us from God through the Holy Spirit. So the word has come to us through the Holy Spirit. And then when we read those words that are printed on a page or maybe you know, on your phone or your eye device or whatever it is, when we're reading those words that have come to us through the Spirit, it's the Spirit who brings those words on pages to life and delivers them to our hearts. So for instance, one of the things I always pray for every weekend when I preach is that God would do what I can't do. I can't bring the word of God to life. I can't deliver it to your heart. I can't make it take root in your heart and grow and produce fruit, but God can through the spirit of God. It's such a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so what he's saying here is that when we're tempted, we need to remember that every temptation is based on a lie because it comes from the father of lies, and the word of God is truth. And so the word of God is able to reveal the lie behind the temptation that's coming to us. In the same way, for instance, that you could have gone, and if you got an email from me, you could have maybe looked at the email address and seen the truth that it didn't come from me, or you could have contacted me, and I could have let you know that it didn't come from me, right? That's the truth, and the Spirit does this for us. He reveals the lies behind the temptations, and he empowers us to make the choice of of truth. And that's why we say to you all the time, don't wait to get into the word until you're being tempted. This is why you need to read the word and memorize the word and study the word and hear the word taught and get it into you so that when the temptation comes, you're able to identify it for what it is because you, you know what the truth is. You've been in the word of God. So I love the fact that what we've basically just said here is that the Trinity is with us when we're facing temptation, the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit helping us to overcome it, to, to fight it, to not take the bait. And, and in our time left, I want to give you just one more, just one more way, and that is sometimes what we need to do is to just get rid of the temptation. Sometimes we can do that. Now that's what Jesus is talking about in our passage today. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says this. Now, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, right? Pretty strong language here. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So in our time left, I want to just kind of unpack this for us. So it helps if we understand the context and where we're coming from. Jesus has been talking to a group of men known as Pharisees. They were um, religious leaders. They were legalists. Um, these were not good people. And as Jesus is talking to them, he, he mentions the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says, right, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. And then he goes on, if you remember, and he quotes the 10th the commandment, which is you shall not Uh, covet or desire anything that belongs to your neighbor, including your, your spouse. And then Jesus says to them, right, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery with, with her in your heart, and that is sin. And so when he's saying this to men who kind of thought, well, you know, as long as I don't commit the physical act of adultery, I haven't committed sin. And Jesus says, no, if you even think about it, if you dwell on it, and you play that out in your heart, that is sin. 
Now, why? Because sin is first a heart issue. It is first and foremost a heart issue. So if sin is first and foremost a heart issue, it seems strange that Jesus would say, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, get rid of it, right? That's weird because if sin is a heart issue, then mutilating your body will not solve the problem. So what's going on here? What's happening? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to understand that Jesus is speaking figuratively to us. He is not suggesting self-mutilation. So, right? And here's why. Because no part of your physical body causes you to sin. There's no part of your body that can make your heart sin. So logically, gouging out your eye cannot stop you from lusting in your heart. You still have another eye and you can still look at things that way, right? You still have another hand, and you can use the hand that way. Here's what's going on. Jesus is doing a couple things. First of all, he wants to point to how serious sin is. And he's telling us that sin is serious, and it requires radical measures on our part. Now, in the Jewish culture, the right eye and the right hand represented one's best vision and one's best skill. So part of what Jesus is saying here is that we should be willing to give up even that which is most valuable to us if doing that will help protect us from sin. Now again, the word sin there, scandalizo, means to to entrap or it's like a bait stick on a trap. So what Jesus is saying is if there are things that tempt you to sin and you usually take that bait and you move from, from the temptation, which is not sin, to dwelling on it and acting on it, which is sin, then he's saying, if possible, just get rid of it. Just get rid of the bait. Just get rid of the trap. It's not rocket science. If we don't take control of the temptations that we tend to give into, then they will take control of us. John MacArthur says this, and I, I think he puts it really well. He says, obviously, getting rid of harmful influences will not change a corrupt heart, into a pure heart. But just as the outward act of adultery reflects a heart that is already adulterous, the outward act of forsaking whatever is harmful reflects a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That outward act is effective protection because it comes from a heart that seeks to do God's will instead of its own. So why does Jesus use such strong words like amputation in hell? I think he's trying to impress upon us the seriousness and the destructive nature of sin. And he knows our tendency is to downplay sin. He knows that when we are being tempted in the middle of temptation, we tend to think, it's not that big of a deal. It won't be that bad. People do this all the time. And we tend to downplay it. And I think even for those of us who have been saved by the grace of God, we can sometimes kind of go down this road. Well, I've been, I've been saved by grace and I'm stay, I stay saved by grace and God has forgiven me of all my past sins and all of my future sins. And we, so we just kind of tend to, tend to downplay sin when in fact he's trying to warn us that even as believers, our sinful choices can have terrible, terrible consequences and can bring about death in our lives. In James chapter 1, in fact, he's trying to impress upon us this very thing. And James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, that's the idea of the the bait on a trap, by his own desire. And then desire, notice the progress, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James is kind of leading us into a progression here. He says there are times when we are 
tempted to sin. There are times when there are just temptations. You know, we just glance this way or we see that or we think that or we get in a conversation and, and there it is. And what he warns us is if we, if we look at the bait, if we focus on the bait, if we start to think about the debate, then our desire for that bait can conceive something. He says this sinful desire that begins to grow in us, this desire to, to give into the temptation. And then this desire will give birth, he says, to sinful actions and words and emotions and attitudes. And then when that sin grows up, it brings about all sorts of death in our lives. And James is saying he's writing this to believers and he's warning believers. Yes, you're saved by grace, but there are consequences for the sinful choices that you make in this life. And this isn't merely figurative language here. Sin can bring about the death of relationships, the death of marriages, uh, trust between people, uh, potential. Sinful choices in your life can take future options out of your life. Uh, it can be the death of your health and, and joy and peace and even life itself. There's a story in 2 Samuel 11 about David. And I was thinking about this uh, story this week as I was looking at the passage in James. And I was thinking about the parallel between the two. In fact, it almost feels like maybe James was thinking about David when he wrote these words. I'm going to read this for you. It's in your notes. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But let me just read it and listen to what happens here. It says, now in the spring of the year, the time when kings would go out to battle, David sent Joab and the servants with him and all of Israel, but David did not go. He remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman who was bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and he inquired about the woman. So we almost see James playing out here. There's a temptation and, and then he begins to, to think about it. He inquires about the woman. And someone said, is, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. And it goes on to say, and then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and she told David, I, I am pregnant. And so here's David. He's where he's not supposed to be, which is often how it starts. He's not, he should be out with his commanders and his army, but he's not there. He stays behind. He's on this rooftop, right? And, he's, and he sees Bathsheba. Now, glancing in her direction wasn't a sin. He has a nice vantage point. He's just looking in the evening and he sees her. And that was the temptation. That was not the sin. It was the temptation. But he chose to dwell on it. And this is where he takes the bait and he dwells on it and he thinks about it and he mulls on it. And what does that do? It leads to desire. The more he thinks about it, a desire grows within him. And then what happens? He acts on it. Or we would say, James would say, it gives birth. It says she conceived and, and then uh, David has her husband murdered. And then eventually the child is born and the child dies. You see, giving in to sinful temptations produces terrible things in our lives. It produces death. And sometimes we are tempted by things we, we can't eliminate. We can't just get rid of them. You know, we have to go outside. We, maybe we have to go to work or go to school. Or we, gotta, we gotta go shopping. And sometimes, right, the temptation's just baked into our culture. And sometimes we just glance by it. We can't help it. We're gonna have to glance by it at times. And it can happen so quickly. But again, the temptation itself isn't sin. It's what we do with it next. And what can we do? Well, we can go to our high priest. We can pray to the Father. We can go to the Word. 
but sometimes we just need to get off the roof. Right, sometimes it's not rocket science, we just need to get off the roof. When David saw Bathsheba, he should have gotten off the roof both physically and mentally, right? He should have moved on. He should have gotten off the roof immediately and he should have gone down and said, hey, you know, uh, maybe I should go be where I'm supposed to be or anybody want to play chess or something, anything, because I need to move off the rooftop both physically and mentally. And I say this because maybe you're here today and there's a rooftop you need to get off of. Right? Maybe, it's a, maybe it's a website that you need to stop going to. It's, it's like a rooftop and you set yourself up every time you go there and you know it. And so it's not rocket science. I mean, you can pray and you can go to your high priest, but I think they're both yelling, get off the rooftop. It's not rocket science. It's just get off. Maybe it's just the internet in general. You, you shouldn't be going there right now. Um, maybe it's social media. That's an issue for a, a lot of people. For a lot of people, it doesn't do anything good. It just takes them to bad places. It's a rooftop where they shouldn't be. You know, maybe, maybe it's a, your smartphone. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's just online gaming. Maybe it's a shopping site or Amazon or a physical store. Maybe it's conversation you keep getting into or a relationship or a job. And it's not rocket science. You just need to get off the rooftop. In Matthew 18, Jesus reiterates this in a little different way. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. <laughs> there it is again. It is better for you to enter life, and, and this is so important, it's better to enter life uh, crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Again, what's he saying? Sin will destroy your life. So you must deal radically with the temptations that tend to trip you up. Even if, and here's the point, even if it cripples your job prospects. Or even if it cripples you financially or socially or at school or on a team or your income or your entertainment options. Over the years as a pastor, I've had plenty of conversations with people who have come into my office, we, we close the door, and uh, they are honest and they are frank with me and they'll say things like pastor I cannot control my my credit card spending I cannot stop buying things on amazon.com you know I, I I go on HBO and I can't control what I watch when I go on there or I can't control what I look at on the internet I've had people say, you know, I can't control what I do when I'm with that other person or what I say or, you know, how much time I spend playing video games or I, I can't control that I'm just, when I go to work, I'm asked to do unethical things and I give into the temptation all of the time and I don't know what to do. All people just look at me across the table and say, I don't know what to do about this. And I'll often say over the years, I've been doing this almost 30 years, and I've kind of got a just pat answer I give now. I know I'm not very helpful at this, but I'll usually just say something like, well, it just sounds like you need to get rid of that thing. Not a lot of compassion in my voice. I'll just say, it sounds like you should get rid of it, right? And this is usually, and usually they'll look across the table with this blank look like I'm speaking Greek, and then I'll say like, well, so what if you gave up your smartphone? Like, what if you did? What if you got a flip phone that just had numbers on it? Like, so what? And people look at me like, how old are you, right? And I'm pretty old. <laughs> I believe it or not, there was a time when, you know, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't get texts and emails all the time everywhere we went and we didn't have internet access and we actually survived. We lived, 
We made phone calls. We got around, you know, we, we, we made it. So I'll so tell people, what if you just got rid of your smartphone? What if you got rid of, I don't know, Netflix, right? What if you just got rid of the video games for a while? What if you just said, I can't control it. It always takes me down this rabbit hole and you got rid of it. What if you got rid of internet access? Again, people look at me like I'm speaking another language. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, what if you got rid of Facebook, right? What if you just got off of, of Twitter? What if you got a lesser paying job, right? What if you just quit your job that keeps tripping you up and you got a lesser paying job or you gave up that hobby or, or that relationship? And here's what usually happens. People look across the table and say, you know, that would cost me way too much to give that up. To which my response is always, it'll cost you a lot more if you don't. And here's some great news. In 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everyone else. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God might provide escape through your high priest. God might provide that uh, as you battle against a lie with the word of truth, or as you pray to the Father. Or God might just give you the wisdom and discipline to get off the roof. Just get off. Just move on. I don't know what that roof might be for you today, but my encouragement to you is get off it, right? It's not rocket science. Just get off the roof. Life will go on. You'll live without that thing. You'll find out that God is there and that God is good. Well, I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but before I do, I just want to mention uh, where we're going from here. This is the end of this series, and um, next week we're going to begin um, a new series on the Gospel of John, and uh, ever since we finished the Gospel of Luke, I have wanted and wanted and wanted to teach on the Gospel of John, and I have been waiting, and it's been, believe it or not, six, seven years now since we finished Luke, and so next weekend we are going to dive into the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John for a long, long time. It's going to be awesome, all right? Here's, here's what you might want to do. I would encourage you to go home and read the Gospel of John this week. It's not hard. It's 21 chapters. I've been reading the Gospel of John twice a day for the last month. You could do it. It's not that hard. John is a deceptive book. It just feels so um, nice and warm and fuzzy and easy to access on the surface, but it is a deep, deep book, and I'm looking forward to our time together. But one of the great ways you can prepare is just to start reading the book of John, and next week we'll dive in to the first five verses. That being said, let me, let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for uh, your clear, concise teaching through Jesus on this matter, on this whole issue of temptation, which we are at times so... Um, so compliant to uh, the schemes of the devil. We can give in so easily. We can rationalize and downplay our sinful choices. But Jesus is just very clear. Sin is a terrible, awful, death kind of thing that we should never, ever mess with. 
Father, I pray for us, as scripture says, that we would start with your son, that we would trust in Christ as our savior and our great high priest. Father, that we would be those who proactively seek you each day in helping keep us away from temptation. And that we would be men and women of the word, learning your truth so that we can identify the lies. But beyond all that, Father, I pray that you would give, the, give us the wisdom to identify when we just need to get off the roof. We just need to get rid of that thing. That you would give us both the wisdom to know when we're in that situation and that you would give us the, the, the faith and the courage to make that decision and cast it away. Yes, knowing that it might cost us something, but that it will cost us far more if we don't. Father, help us to have this conviction that we find in Scripture and to be people who make that choice to get off the roof today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's